จะสาบกวาทัวรหัตัวสมาสัมปุทสานโมจะสาบกวาทัวรหัตัวสมาสัมปุทสานโมจะสาบกวาทัวรหัตัวสมาสัมปุทสาพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะ
Whereas the reality of our life might be that we're surrounded by very fortunate circumstances. We've got more than enough food to eat. Trustworthy, wonderful people around us. Good accommodation. And yet we've got a story going on that says that sometime I'm hard done by. Somehow this is not good enough. I, mean, I deserve more. Or, or you know, some stories come up with you know, like feeling really threatened even when we're not threatened at all. So the point I was making, and I'd like to perhaps expand upon a little bit this evening, is the difference it makes, whether we're educated spiritually or not, whether we have a mind informed by Dhamma, whether we really listen to the wisdom teachings and take them in, or whether we don't. Because if we, if we haven't had this education or we don't really receive the teachings and really apply them to our lives as we're living them then what's going to happen is we will tend to make problems out of things that we don't have to make problems out of like uh, aging the last week or so I've been uh, talking to various people about organizing a mindful aging day next year at Amrawati um, and uh, it seems to be something that people think is a useful thing to do. Those who are over 50 and, and recognize that they've recovered from the intoxication of youth. Youth, of course, can be a wonderful thing, but it's got serious disadvantages. It's highly overrated. Uh, so long as we're ignorant and we attach to this physical form and identify as it, well, then the vitality of the body we take as being self. I am invulnerable. This is my energy, and the, uh, the inflation that takes place as a result of that is nothing short of embarrassing. And that's the predicament that, uh, sadly, most of our world is caught in right now. But once you reach 50, well, by that time you've probably recovered from that intoxication, and there's a dawning of wisdom. You recognize that actually this business of being a human being is something to learn from. It's not something just to indulge in and use up when you're young and then afterwards get full of remorse and regret and, and then die feeling miserable and blaming everybody. Rather, it's something to learn from. So I thought, well, we could have a mindful aging day, whereas if you're over 50, get together and we just pull our consciousness and say, well, what does it feel like to be getting old and to see what we've got ahead of us? Disintegration. There's a lot of emphasis on young people and and educating children, and, and that's, uh, that's fine and, and certainly very suitable. But what about caring for those who are on the second stage of life, the post-50, who, uh, who have a, a, a wealth of understanding and experience but are, a are faced with the challenge of disintegration? As Buddhists, well, you know, mindfulness and clear comprehension, we bring that to bear on this predicament and say, well, let's get together and, 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 and consider it. Because if we have wisdom teachings, if we have a wise approach to this, then, uh, then we can approach it without making a problem out of it. If we don't have a wise approach, then we do make a problem out of it because it definitely doesn't agree with our preferences. I've just started reading a book uh, called Contented Dementia, which is by uh, a guy called Oliver James. And Oliver James is not to be uh, confused with Jamie Oliver, 
who um, knows a lot about cooking. I don't know how much he knows about dementia, but uh, now this is Oliver James, and the book is uh, Contented Dementia. And from what I've read so far, it looks very good. It looks like a very wise book. It's like studying the condition of dementia, like the condition of Alzheimer's. Uh, there's a lot of studies being done now, and you, you can learn what goes on in the, in the brain. There's a deterioration of particular part of the brain and and uh, the person suffering from this disability actually doesn't know how to process any new information. They don't know how to process new data. Old data is there, old memories are still perfectly intact. So if you understand this, if you get educated about this, you study it, and you say, well, this is a way of according with it. So the way of according, for instance, with somebody with such a dementia is, well, you don't go and ask them a lot of questions because they don't have the ability to process uh, new data. You affirm their experience rather than say, "Come on, Mum, you know, can't you get it together? This is, you know, this is not a prison of war camp you're in. This is a, this is a, a nursing home." And, you know, well, if we understand and there's a wise approach to ageing, we don't have to make a problem out of it. If there's an uninformed, unwise approach to ageing, well, we automatically will make a problem out of it. And so the future is not bright. If there's no wisdom, that's the, the, uh, the basic story. So whether there's Dhamma or not Dhamma uh, determines very much our experience of the world. And, and if we can just register that, well, we'll be encouraged. So I really want to cultivate this. I want to cultivate wisdom. Yeah, I, I want to. I'm interested in culture because without wisdom, contentment falls away. That's the reality. And the Buddha spoke about it. All the great wise teachings, teachers spoke about it. And the, uh, the skillful thing is to really internalize it and say, well, we've, still got all, we've all got our marbles still and we've got relatively good health. Well, let's really apply ourselves to the wisdom teachings, whatever that means for us. Yeah. And the same can be said for contentment. If there's contentment, then we see the world in a certain way. If there's discontentment, we see the world in another way to register that. And then when we really register that, we become very conscious of that. Well, then we want to cultivate contentment. Not stupid contentment, not ignorant contentment, but wise contentment. The contentment that is peace of heart, peace of mind, and they can see things clearly. They can hear clearly. Somebody was telling me recently how they'd been on a meditation retreat and uh, the mind was really peaceful, really still. And they came across this teaching, this wise teaching, which says the wise never find fault with the world. And it just, the mind just opened up this wonderful recognition of the reality, the profound truth of that, the the transformative potential of that realization. The wise never find fault with the world. Because this person was in a state of contentment, they heard that. Now, somebody else who's in a state of discontentment says, well, come on, don't be ridiculous. I mean, not finding fault with the world, the world's a mess. I mean, you should find fault with it. The world's in a complete hopeless state. There's wars going on everywhere, just greedy, deluded, crazy people running around being nasty to each other. Well, from the discontented heart and the discontented, confused mind, that's true. But that approach doesn't actually help resolve anything. 
because the tendency will be that person will just keep going around finding fault with the world. Saying, shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. The world shouldn't be this way. And complaining and blaming. And the habit of, uh, of endlessly complaining. Whereas if there is contentment, what a profound difference it makes into the way we see, the way we feel, the way we receive life, the way we receive another person. You know, a place of contentment, a sense of inadequacy. If, if you have worked on yourself to the point where you recognize a self-existent sense of inherent adequacy, if you know what I mean by that, where you can just not add anything to this experience of this moment. You can just be there, alert, attentive, watching, listening, not adding anything to the moment, not taking anything away from it, and see and receive the experience, for instance, of another person. What happens is that we don't, we don't put a view on them when there's contentment. We don't project an opinion out on them, say, that person is wrong, that person is flawed, that person is hopeless, that person shouldn't be this way. Or they're greedy, or they're arrogant, or they're confused. You know. They may be all of those things, but we don't add anything to that in a way which disturbs our heart. And what is the opposite? If there is contentment, and there is such a confused individual appears to us, we're from a place of inherent adequacy, from a place of feeling, sensing, our own hearts, our own minds, in a just-so state, we can receive that person in a just-so state. Yes, there may be all those things, but the confusion is just so. You've heard me say many times before, I'm sure, the story of when I had um, one of my uh, more difficult periods when I was in Thailand as a young monk. Uh, I had, uh, my knees had given up on me as a result of my motorbike accident and things that didn't really get uh, healed properly at the time. And after three or four or five years of sitting on a stone floor, uh, my knees had given up and I could barely sit on the floor at all or bow or sit cross-legged. They were seized uh, with arthritis. And so the, uh, the doctors over there, the medical people, very generously, very kindly offered uh, to take care of it for me for free, which is very generous of them. And so I had an operation on both my knees at the same time. However, the operation didn't quite go as planned and many weeks later I was still far from recovered and I was uh, visiting Lumpur Cha. He was down in Bangkok and, and I couldn't bow properly and as I was trying to pay my respects to him, he asked me how I was doing and I, I started complaining. and said, oh, the doctor said it was going to be like this and it, it shouldn't be like this and my knee should be like that and I should be like this and... He looked at me with this utter disbelief. Smiling, he said, you know, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. He knew the cause and the effect. There are causes for it to be this way. Of course it should be this way. If there weren't causes for it to be this way, it wouldn't be this way. There are causes for it to be this way. But what I was doing was adding something to it. I was projecting the heart energy out onto the condition and saying it shouldn't be this way. I was making a problem out of life. Life was just so. My knees were just so. The world is always just so. But we're not at one with the just so way of things. We're always having an opinion about it. We're always judging it. Right, wrong, good, bad, should, shouldn't. 
So if we have found out how to fall back into a sense of inherent adequacy within our own hearts and minds and remember that and use that and cultivate that as wise contentment and to act from that place as we approach the world, as we approach the problems we experience. And we don't run out and try and change the problems, change the things that stimulate the problem, the perception of a problem. We don't get obsessed with trying to change ourselves. Of course, we are motivated to try and change ourselves. But when we're coming from a place of contentment, of wise contentment, we're not obsessed with trying to change ourselves. We, we have patience. Mm. Patience is a, a profound virtue. Um, if we want to really engage in the cultivation of wise contentment, then we definitely need patience. Mm. Meditation is a, is a wonderful skill for developing wise contentment, for developing patience. But even meditation, if we're not careful about it, and if we don't approach it in a, a genuinely mindful, embodied, kindly, patient way, even meditation is a is a tool that we can misuse. A lot of people are talking about mindfulness these days as a therapeutic tool. And of course, mindfulness can be used as a therapeutic tool for adjusting psychological imbalances and so on. But that's, that's not... That's not necessarily what the Buddha was talking about as mindful as a, as a tool for spiritual transformation. Doing the spiritual work is a much more subtle business than redressing imbalances on, imbalances on the psychological level. It's like somebody picking up a, a chisel and using it as a screwdriver. Now, I don't know if any of you have done this. I would hope not, but it does tend to happen. Sometimes young monks in the monastery don't know what a chisel is. They've never learned what a chisel is. A chisel, a well-honed chisel, is a powerful tool for doing very refined and beautiful work. But it sort of looks like a screwdriver. (laughs) And if you don't know the tool you're working with, well, you can use it as a screwdriver and you can get your screw turned in, and that's fine, you can do that, but you've ruined the tool then. And you can't use the chisel anymore. And that's a great pity. Well, similarly... Approaching meditation in the wrong way, mindfulness practice in the wrong way, spiritual discipline in the wrong way, without, without care, without guidance, without skill, we actually end up abusing the tool. And uh, we can hurt ourselves more. People get greedy about meditation. In this monastery, I don't advocate very much formal meditation. We have three periods of formal sitting meditation a day. 40 minutes in the morning, 30 in the evening, another 30 in the evening, and that's it. That's formal meditation, that's group practice. If other people want to do more than that, that's fine. They're welcome to do it, but I don't necessarily encourage it. What I do encourage is a lot of mindfulness in daily life practice. If we can gradually become familiar with the powerful tool of concentration, meditation, and exercise mindfulness, all-round mindfulness, not, not... becoming fanatical about being mindful of our breath and and following our greedy, obsessive tendencies, if we can go at it gradually, well, then the whole being will, in the process, develop the tools that are going to support our truly deepening in meditation. We will approach meditation with a heart that is informed with Dhamma, not just a mind. In the beginning, I was talking about a mind informed with information about Dhamma. That's important. 
But what's perhaps more important is when the heart is informed with Dhamma, with wisdom teachings. Now, really going gradually and studying as we go along. Is this working? Is this taking us more towards balance? Are we becoming more patient? Are we becoming more grateful? Are we becoming more tolerant? Or are we becoming more impatient? More or less grateful? Or less tolerant? If our practice is really going in the right direction, well, we can judge from these things. But if we just get greedy and obsessed with meditation, I've got to do more meditation, I don't want to do any work, you know, we go and do the real practice. Yeah. Recently reading something by Ajahn Jayasaro, uh, one of our senior monks in Thailand, and uh, he was translating uh, texts from the scriptures there were the Buddha there's a teaching by the Buddha known as the Awada Patimoka and uh, he translates a portion of this as saying that that patient endurance is the ultimate incinerator for the defilements and I think this is really helpful to, to contemplate this this is what the Buddha said yeah. Yeah. patient endurance is the ultimate incinerator now sometimes people will talk about patient endurance as a, a mediocre sort of second rate practice yeah, like living here at Hanum, oh, you know, Ajahnmanindo doesn't encourage a lot of meditation. I'll put up with this place. I'll develop a bit of patient endurance, I suppose, and then I'll I'll go off somewhere and do the real practice. I'll meditate a lot. Well, I've been doing this now for thirty-five years, and I've seen a lot of people use that approach—the greedy approach to meditation. You know, they think they're being mindful, but actually, what they're doing is following greed. So, exercising modesty as we go into this practice, exercising care, caution, and, 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 and investigating as we go along for ourselves, how is this working for me? How does this, is my life becoming more balanced? Is there more gratitude in my heart? Is the heart becoming imbued with Dhamma as I go along? If the heart is not being imbued with gratitude, well, that's really unfortunate. We need to pay attention to that. We need to look. You know, look at the goodness of our lives. Look at all the things that, all the good fortune that we have, the things that other people do to help us and support us. And if all we've got is bitterness and resentment, well, you don't want to push past that. Some people, that's their approach to meditation as well. I just, if only we could just stop having to do work and chanting and purges and all this kind of mediocre, second rate, pseudo spiritual gobbledygook and get on with the real practice of developing the jhanas, you know, then you know, I'm going to crack through and I get rid of the nivaranas and, and then I'll be there. You know, well, you know, if that's your approach to practice, well, this is not the place to be. You're welcome to do that, but, and I wish you all the very best. I sincerely do. But this is not the place to be, and I personally don't have confidence in that. Mm. From what I've observed over the years, actually it's more suitable to investigate gradually, modestly, with humility... How is this affecting my heart? Is there patience? Is there increased gratitude for the goodness that I've received? Is there increased tolerance? Mm. When the heart is not imbued with Dhamma, when the heart is not imbued with spiritual qualities, with, with the tr- wisdom of, the, of, the, of true teachings, then what we've got is intolerance. Yeah. Those people are like that. I don't want to have anything to do with them. That race of people or, or whatever. We have an intolerant attitude. 
Now, there are reasons for these unwholesome states, intolerance and ingratitude and impatience. And if we really listen to what the teachers are telling us and with some humility apply mindfulness to our condition here and now, which is the only condition we ever have here and now, we never have there and then, this is all we ever have, and with some humility we bring mindfulness and sensitivity to investigate this, when you start to see, and one of the common things that a lot of people realize is that there's a certain deadness here. You know, I hear this so often, I hear a lot of people talking, I just feel dead. My mind is very bright, you know, very, very bright, very clever and sharp and intelligent and, and, and so on. But, but actually in my heart, and, you know, on retreats this often comes up, people will come and talk about feeling like it's frozen or it's cold. Or, and you, you start to talk the language of the heart about subtle nuances of feeling, of, like gratitude. Say, well, I just don't feel anything. It's not that I'm ungrateful, I just don't feel anything. Well, you want to look at that. And there's ways you can look at it. You can start to bring awareness to this area in the body, like to breathe into this area, to bring warmth into this area, to practice loving kindness for this area of the body. Practice loving kindness for the whole body, to find where we split off or cut off or blocked off parts of the body. And we start to discover things. Maybe not the things we want to discover, like all sorts of old emotional stuff, old unlived life. What to some degree has probably happened for all of us is that early on in life, we, before we got educated with Dhamma, before we came across wise teachings, before we even knew there was a path of practice that leads to wise contentment, we had a lot of painful experiences. And instead of really living through those painful experiences and letting them go and growing because of them, we used our will, we used our attention to isolate them, to isolate them in ice, to freeze them. And as this becomes a habit, the heart becomes cold and numb. And this happens for a lot of people. In fact, it might even be called normal. Yeah. But if you start to exercise the spiritual disciplines and start to generate some energy, what happens is it becomes a problem. The intensification means that the energy has got to go somewhere so it can go up into your head and you start to become Yes, mentally obsessed with understanding things and studying the scriptures, studying the suttas and becoming an expert at understanding about reality. You know, become a professional thinker about reality. Yeah. Or the energy can go in different directions. You become obsessed with greed, obsessed with desire. But when this part of our being, when the emotional household has been receiving right, kind, careful, considerate attention. This part of us is open and trusting and vulnerable. We start to feel, I can feel vulnerable. I do feel vulnerable. And that's okay. When we get to that point of being able to feel the vulnerability that is the case of being a human being, we are vulnerable to hurt. We're all vulnerable to hurt. But when we can feel this vulnerability and allow this vulnerability and be mindful at the same time as feeling vulnerable... It doesn't have to be a problem. <clears throat> and then when there's a, an open-hearted relationship to life, well, yeah, gratitude becomes normal. So gratitude is just, that's the appropriate response to all the goodness of our lives. Tolerance is the intelligent respo- response to the predicament when, of course, people are different. 
uh, all sorts of different conditions and conditioning that people have come through that make them different. The cultures, the cultures of the world, you know, the way different people relate to each other, and you know, the way New Zealanders relate. I mean, they're a, they're a pretty funny bunch compared to English people. Although we came from the English, a lot of us, you know, we're not really like the English. We've got different ways of talking. And, and you know, English people go to New Zealand, they tend to find New Zealanders rather quaint. You know, they're, kind of, they're very different. And, or Australians, and they're different again. Or Americans, well, they're very different. Not to mention Russians or Albanians or uh, whatever, or Africans or Asians. I mean, this is, this is a world of differences. Now, if we have tolerance, we don't feel threatened by the differences, different religions, different stories about life, because there's understanding there, there's wisdom there. So if we can really appreciate the difference it makes, whether we have access to the heart of contentment or don't, well, then we really will become interested in how to cultivate this wise contentment, not just getting greedy to get rid of the things that so-called that are the apparent cause of discontentment. Now, that's not the way, but to understand, to really investigate our life in this moment as it's happening, using the tools, using the, using the disciplines that we've had the good fortune to inherit, but using them mindfully, not just picking up any old tool and then greedily applying it. I'm going to meditate my way to liberation or or whatever, I'm going to keep precepts. Five is not enough, I need eight. Eight is not enough, I need ten. Ten is not enough, I need 227 precepts. I'm going to become a monk. Yeah, go off and become a monk and, yeah, well, you know, that's a good idea, but let's, let's hold it for a while. Ajahn Shah realized, you know, when Westerners turned up in his monastery how greedy and obsessed and confused and imbalanced they were, and so he wouldn't give them ordination for a long time. Most monasteries in Thailand, you turn up and they'll ordain you within a day or so. And you don't even have to learn the chanting properly. You know, just somebody would be sitting next to you and will, will tell you the chanting, say, repeat after me. You know, like Ajahn Turidama when he was being ordained. You know, he didn't even learn the chanting. He didn't know anything about it. He just had somebody next to him and says, okay, so okay say, say not more three times. So Ajahn Turidama goes, not more, not more, not more. <laughs> of course, he said, not more tasa bhagavatur three times. Is, is sort of a, uh, being just told what to do rather than actually understanding. So Ajahn Chah didn't endorse that approach. You know, you've got to wait. And so he would make Westerners wait for a long time you know, before they could become bhikkhus. They would have to live as anagarikas, like we have here Thomas and Gabor, and then become samaneras, uh, you know, train with, with a few increased precepts. So increasing the precepts gradually. And in the process, what we're doing is observing. And then even once you do become a monk, well, then you've got another five years when you live with a teacher who's there to help you get a frame of reference for all the exuberance of heart, all the, the enthusiasm. You know, you're living the celebrate renunciate life and you've got all this energy and what are you going to do with it? Well, if you're not really balanced, if you're not really got your feet on the ground in a firm and stable way, well, that energy can blow you off course and you can get, make your predicament worse. You can get very confused and cause problems for yourself, problems for the people you live with, and problems for the world. And so even once you do become a monk, you still live with a teacher for five years just to help contain this exuberance of heart. 
So I think that's a, it's a useful metaphor, a useful image for all of us in the, who have a, a commitment to the spiritual life to go gradually, yeah. to give priority to contentment, wise contempt, to learn how to cultivate here and now, being with the way things are, just so. And then from that place, you know, think, okay, what's the next, next step? You know, yes, maybe we need to do some more meditation. Maybe what we need to do is just develop more patience. You know, just being patient. You know, I want to get on with meditation. Well, can I be patient with not having time to meditate? You know, like a mother who doesn't have patience, can she be a good mother? No way. I mean, children don't grow up in a few days or a few weeks. It takes years, years for children to grow up, to be adolescents, and even then they're impossible. Well, likewise, we're actually training our own hearts. It takes years. We have to really be patient with the obsessions of our own hearts and our own minds. And I don't like this, I don't like that. Well, liking and disliking is just so. Well, it's not just so to me, it's really important. Well, okay, well, go gradually and practice being patient with your preferences. Make that a, a spiritual discipline. I'm not going to meditate anymore. I'm just going to be patient with my liking and disliking. As I go through the day, instead of rushing home so that I can get all spiritual on my zafu, you know, I'll just actually be patient with liking and disliking. When you meet somebody that you like, you say, oh, I'm so pleased to see you. Say, oh, right, liking, okay. Liking, just quietly, inwardly. Or disliking. Something's going on that you really don't like. You, know, you hear something on the radio and, and it brings sadness to your heart and there's a disliking. You dislike the sadness, and, but you don't catch it there, so then you dislike the other person or you dislike what they're doing. But, but then you remember, I'm going to be patient with my preferences. That's my practice. Disliking, disliking. If we approach our meditation, if we approach the mindfulness practice in this way, well, we're going to deepen gradually. We're not going to necessarily deepen immediately and throw ourselves more out of balance. And what will grow, and my, I'm, I feel thoroughly convinced, what will grow is a, is a wise form of contentment that means that we can view life without making problems out. That teaching of you know, the wise do not find fault with the world will really make sense to us because we'll be seeing, hearing, feeling, sensing from a deeper level. We'll see that the world is like this. There are causes for the world to be the way it is. Now, does that mean we become complacent and, and just sit there and say, well, it's just the way things are? No, because this is wise contentment. This is not foolish contentment. This is sensitive contentment. With sensitive contentment also comes compassion. Yeah. With real contentment, there's, there's a sensitivity of heart, which means that, yes, you move to tears when you see the sadness of the world. But do you become lost in sorrow? No. There's a sensitivity which means that, yes, you can delight in the company of good friends and, and be moved to tears of joy with Mudita at the beauty of life. But do you get lost in the beauty? No. Yeah. So contentment is of the essence, something that we can, uh, if there's a careful approach, uh, a gradual approach to uh, spiritual life rather than a greedy approach to spiritual life, then... I trust that, that this sort of an appreciation will surface naturally. Even talking about the contentment. I've got to cultivate contentment. Well, that's not it either. You know, to be with this moment, 
can I be contented with this moment? Whatever this moment is bringing me, including discontentment. And I want this moment to be otherwise. Can I be contented with this? Can I be patient with this? Can I remember the goodness of my life? Mm. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs> Damayang Damavadakata Sadukarangadamase Sadur